0: Well, if you will, please find a copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, as we look at verses 11 through 26. Let's continue our series on um, Acts. Last week we saw a lame man healed, and this week we see Peter um, taking advantage of a captive audience to be quick to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26, the following. While he, that's the lame man from last week, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people together ran to them in the portico called Solomons. Astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or our piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would move in our hearts by your Spirit. We submit to your word and um, thank you that it does not return void, but it achieves the purpose for whence you send it. Work in our hearts, we pray. We pray for anointing, both for the hearer and the preacher alike. In the name of Jesus, amen. Have you ever had one of those now what moments? (laughs) Uh, Now what? Uh, When I was about 12, I was on a mission trip with my dad in Jamaica, a construction trip. We went with Trinity Church Montgomery, where I grew up. And it was the last day of a long week of working. And one of the goals that week was to get the foundation laid for a retaining wall. And the retaining wall was going to keep the dirt from washing away from the dormitory's foundation. So it was a fairly important job. Well, the, the last day came. And by this point, we had dug the foundation, we had laid the rebar, and the last thing that was needed was to mix and pour the cement. Well, right after lunch, it was time to do it, and uh, the power went out. Now, the power going out doesn't seem like it would have much of an impact with the cement. You can still mix cement with a shovel in a... Uh, wheelbarrow. But the problem was, with the power going out, so went the pumps for the wells. And so we had no water. Now what? Well, I reckon somebody prayed. Uh, because then about 15 minutes later, the most powerful rainstorm that I have ever experienced, not thunderstorm, not violent weather... But the most powerful rainstorm came about and it filled our buckets with water. And we were able to mix the cement and get it all done. See, God had fixed the now what problem. You know, when telling people about Jesus, I think we ought to be more about soul winning than just telling, right? Soul winning is a stronger approach than just telling folks about Jesus. It's being intentional about really winning souls for Jesus and being intentional in pursuing people for Jesus. And and, and and people have to get to the point of the now what moment. Do you know what I mean by that? That, that? That having come to the end of themselves, they see that they have a need of salvation. You've got to get to the now what point before Christ is lovely, before the solution is even known that it is needed. Well, Peter, in another evangelistic sermon this morning, he takes people to that point, to the, oh wow, now what, moment. He gets them to the point where they realize just whom they have killed when they killed Jesus. Presenting to them clearly the identity of Christ. But on the other side of the now what moment, there was salvation for those even who had cried out, we have no king but Caesar. What situation here? Last week we saw uh, Jesus heal a man who had been lame from birth through Peter and John. This man was an older man in his culture. He was over 40 Uh, And he had been lame from birth, and he was laid daily at the gate, or one of the gates, to the temple complex. And he was converted through the process of his healing. He experiences both physical and spiritual healing. And so this week, we see him clinging to Peter and John. He does not want to leave their presence. He went walking and leaping and praising God, and he is with them in the temple courts, making it really apparent through whom this healing came. He was a man whom everyone knew. They saw him daily. The the religious faithful saw him daily as they went to morning and evening prayers in the temple courts. And here he was, no longer lame, but actually having muscles that didn't exist before and ligaments had been made right. And he wasn't just hobbling, he was leaping. But the greater movement was that of his heart, that he was praising God for what happened. Well, as more and more people see what has happened, as more and more people hear the commotion, we find now Peter and John kind of, uh, you know, they're they're no longer going to prayer. There's such a crowd that they go to an area off to the side of the temple complex. The temple complex was huge. It was called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. It it was kind of like a holy pole barn. Think about a pole barn. It has columns and a a roof over it. And, And a lot of folks can fit in. This would have had columns all down the middle with a cedar roof. And it would have been open on one side, spilling into the courts. And so a lot of people could hear Peter and John as they tell them about what has happened. A great number of folks can gather. And so we see in this text that they all ran together to Peter and to John. Well, you know, preachers like captive audiences. And this was a big audience, and it was captive. So Peter opens his mouth, and he begins to talk about Jesus. Now, so often in what passes for biblical evangelicalism, the focus is more on um, how we feel and uh, how Jesus can meet our immediate needs. Now, Jesus does meet immediate needs. He does help us with life's problems But the the primary thing he deals with is the record of our sin and guilt, of our, our need of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And so it's interesting when Peter has this captive audience, what does he say? He doesn't begin dealing with their felt needs. He goes straight to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He presents to them Jesus crucified, Jesus raised, and tells them that salvation is possible. And calls them very explicitly to repentance and to faith. He's going to spend really the vast majority of his sermon talking about who this Jesus is whom they murdered. I mean, how did they murder him? Well, these are the ones who would have been in the crowds calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus. And he's going to lay the guilt right at their feet. There's no mincing of words. And he's going to talk about a lot, lot about who Jesus is. And so we're going to walk through it. Not taking it in order, but taking it thematically. The first thing we see is towards the beginning. And this one whom they killed is the servant of God. And this servant of God who is vindicated and glorified by God. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. Have you ever vouched for someone? In order to vouch for someone, you have to be trusted, perhaps the person in authority, to be able to make that vouching possible for your opinion to actually matter. What we read here is that none other than the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God of all the universe, Yahweh himself, he has vouched for Jesus, the one whom they killed. Remember where they're standing. It's in the outer parts of the temple courts. And you can see the temple right beside it. The smoke of the sacrifices coming up and they're filling your nostrils. You can see the blood running in the channels out to the streets, out of the temple, from the sacrifices. You can hear the prayers of the people. And these people were those who saw themselves as religiously faithful. And they've just heard that the God whom they claim to serve, vouched for, vindicated, exalted, the very one that they killed, seeking to be religiously fervorous, faithful. They missed it. See, Jews at that time were very very proud of their connection to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so when Peter, he doesn't say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He speaks slowly and uses a lot of words to say it. The God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. I mean, he's just pouring it on. The one whom you claim to serve, he glorified this one whom you killed. And he uses a phrase that's really important. He calls him the servant of God, or his servant. This is a phrase that only appears five times in the New Testament, and it always refers to Jesus And the reason it refers to Jesus is because it is a phrase straight out of the Old Testament talking about the Messiah. If you've ever heard of the suffering servant songs of Isaiah, there was this figure whom Isaiah prophesied would come under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who would come and would save his people. And he was, you ready for this? The Servant of God, capital S Servant. Isaiah 42 verse 1 points to this servant who is Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. And so when Peter says that you have killed the servant of God, this means that they have gotten his identity wrong. They thought he was an imposter. But in reality, God has showed to all the world through his exaltation, through his resurrection and ascension and seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, that this is his servant. And they killed him. Now what? Now what? We killed the servant of God. Now what? But not only was this the one whom they killed, they killed the one who is connected to the God of Abraham. Now, do you know the kids' song, Father Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Uh, and then it gets really long, right? And then and then by the end of it, you're thinking, why do we start the song? Because it's so long. But the, the thing is that the God of Abraham, there was great pride in being connected physically and spiritually to Abraham. This was their national identity. And there were promises made to Abraham that were true, not just of the Jews, but also all of the world. And it's referenced here in verse 25. You're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There was this great promise that from the offspring of Abraham would come one particular offspring, through whom would come hope, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. That all the nations be blessed through this individual, the offspring of Abraham. And guess what? He has come, his name was Jesus, and you killed him. Now what? The same offspring would be a prophet. And not just any prophet. He would be the expected, the long-looked-for prophet. This prophet who was the Messiah. A better prophet than Moses, we learn from Hebrews. Look at verses 22-23. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Who is this better prophet? It is Jesus. What makes Jesus a better prophet than Moses? Moses was the best prophet. God spoke to him face to face, and we don't see that ever again in the Old Testament. What makes uh, Jesus a better prophet than Moses? Well, it's one thing to convey the message of another, which is what a prophet does. He conveys the message of God. It is another thing when God himself conveys it himself. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, he is no longer just one who is speaking for someone else. He is speaking for himself. He is the Word of God. He is the direct revelation of the Father to the world that is in rebellion against him. He is the Logos, the actual Word of God. He is the lawgiver. He is the source of the Old Testament and the one that the Old Testament looks to. He is the one who appeared... To Moses in the burning bush, he is the one who appeared to Moses and to all of Israel at Mount Sinai. He is the lawgiver. He is prophet, priest, and king. And guess what? You killed him. Now what? Now what? But Peter has more to say. (laughs) Man, he's heaping it on hard, isn't he? Uh, have you ever been in one of those meetings in which someone has really driven home the point, and while there might be more facets of the situation to explore, the point's been made? You know, it's, it's not that the point hasn't been made. Everything's been said, it's just that not everybody has said it. Um, Peter keeps on going. He makes it several times clear in this passage that this one whom they killed, he was the Messiah, is The present tense, the Messiah. Uh, He is the Christ is the phrase that's used here. Christ was the Greek word that refers to the Jewish Messiah. So it's the same thing, the Messiah and Christ, same thing. It's a title. It's the promised one, the anointed one, whom God would send to save his people. Now, they were looking for a Messiah, a Christ, who would drive the Romans away who had set up the Davidic kingdom again in a theocracy in which God's people basically ruled the world from Jerusalem with a little king on the throne. Now, they misunderstood what the Messiah was going to be, but they were looking for him nonetheless. And then Peter says, you killed him. You killed the Christ. (laughs) We've been looking for this guy, and you murdered him. But there's one last description here, and I've saved it for last because I believe it's the most serious. Look at verses 14 through 15 again. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." Do you see how Peter juxtaposes here, contrasts in close proximity? Barabbas, whom the crowds demanded to be released instead of Jesus, who was a known and self avowed insurrectionist and a murderer. They wanted a murderer instead of the one who gives life. And so they killed the author, the leader, the prince of life itself. This is no mere misdemeanor. This is no slight city code violation. This is no paltry parking ticket. They killed the author of life itself. What does life refer to here? We can say it refers to physical and spiritual. I genuinely don't know which one is in view here, but both are true. He is the author, the source of all physical life. John 1.3 tells us that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Life itself finds its origin in Christ. But probably more specifically here is talking about spiritual life. We are dead in our trespasses and sins and, and yet here was the one who was coming into the world and in him was the light and the life of men or John 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And guess what? They killed him. Now what? Now what? Well, I mean, praise God that we weren't back there 2,000 years ago and we didn't kill him. So that makes us safe, right? Well, not so much. 2,000 years of distance, a different culture, a different religious background, these things don't offer us any safety, do they? Why is this? Because, see, their their denial of him came from an underlying issue. Their killing of him came from an underlying issue, and that was the issue of their hearts. They denied him. They killed him, their external action, consenting to his death, demanding his death of the Roman governor... Because of what was in their heart, and what was in their heart was a denial of the Christ. The Greek word here can also mean to reject, to refuse, to renounce, to forsake, or to disown. Now, denying Jesus can take a lot of different forms, can it? We can think of the big picture ones, the easy application ones of, of people of different religions. You know, Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists, or, or atheists, they deny any God. But there is a far, far more dangerous way to deny Jesus. And my friends, it is very rampant in the South. It is very rampant in Bruton, Alabama. It is very rampant in the pews of the churches of our fair city. And it it is to identify with Jesus casually and culturally on the outside. And yet to have no vital connection to Him on the inside. To look good on the outside. To look religious on the outside. Just like the Pharisees and yet have nothing in the heart. There's no love for Jesus. There's no salvation from Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not part of that person. Does that make sense? To look good on the outside and religious on the outside. And yet to not actually know the Lord Jesus is a form of denying who He is. In the the salvation that is only in His name and that that He has accomplished for us on the cross. Everyone must get to that now what moment. When we realize that there is no hope in ourselves, in our own goodness. We can deny Christ and the salvation He freely offers while looking good on the outside. You don't have to be a murderer of the author of life to deny Jesus. We can deny Him by failing to submit to His Word, to His law, to His reign, and to the righteousness of Christ that has been manifest apart from the law. It can be dressed up in good works, but like lipstick on a pig, it's just denial. Now what? But it's when we reach the point of now what that we find the mercy and grace of God extended to us. This is the good news, right? See, Peter doesn't leave them at the now what moment. He doesn't say, hey guys, I'm out of here. He gives them the gospel. He gives them the call to salvation. You know, there are times in our lives when we aren't ready to hear things. I don't mean hard conversations. I just mean that sometimes we don't have the understanding to process what we're hearing. But it really isn't until we get to the now what moment of, ooh, I'm in trouble. I'm going to hell. It's only then that we can hear the mercy and grace of God. It's only then that when we see our need for a Savior that Christ is lovely. Because it's only when we see our sin that we see our need. For the loveliness of Christ, and it seems that this is where many people went to. This day, it seems that this is where the Holy Spirit took many people in our text today, and we know that because in next week's passage in Acts four four, we read this. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men, just the men, number of men, came to about five thousand. Now this isn't 5,000 men converted on this day. Rather, this is more likely that the number of male believers in the Jerusalem area was now at 5,000. That's not even including the women and the children. We've gone from 120 at the beginning of the day of Pentecost, 3,000 at the end of the day of Pentecost, and now over 5,000 men in very quick order. God is on the move. As people got to that now what moment and saw the loveliness of Christ and their need for a Savior. What does Peter do? He calls them to repentance. That's the now what. Verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be blotted out. There is no salvation without repentance. A repentance is turning away from that which is heinous to God both in our beliefs and in our actions. And faith is the other side of the coin of repentance as we turn away from sin and turn to Christ in belief. What would it look like for the people in our text to repent? Well, primarily it meant that they would have to repent of their rejection of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the God-man, the Son of God, the Savior, the Lord. They would have to repent of trying to save themselves by, by doing good works or their own Jewish pedigree, turning from those things and accepting Christ as He is freely offered to them in the gospel. God calls us all for them, both in salvation and on a daily basis. In salvation, we turn from our sin, and we see that it is heinous. And we see that God is disgusted by it. And we see that we deserve hell because of it. And we turn from it, turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation, accepting the atoning work that was achieved for us at the cross. But in the Christian life, we are called to live lives of daily repentance. Let me ask you something now. When you became a Christian, did you stop sinning? No, right? This is the tension of Romans 6, 7, and 8. That we continue to, bite, to battle the flesh daily. And we are called to continually be turning away from our sin. To mourn it. To say, oh Lord, I've done it again. Please forgive me. Is there something in your life that you need to repent of? Is there something that you've let fester? That you had not dealt with that you know you need to? Because here's the thing. We we turn away from sin and the one we turn to is so much greater than our sin. The, The lie of the devil is that our sin is so much better than the freedom that we experience in Christ. And that's a lie. Because you know that feeling when you come clean, right? And it's a wonderful feeling when your burdens are released. And you have the blessing of a free and clear conscience. Is sin really better than that, Adam? And yet this is what we believe often. Because the promise here that he holds out to them of repent, right? Turn away and turn back to God. Is this great phrase that your sins may be blotted out. I love this. I love this imagery because it means that that there's hope. Even for those who murdered his beloved son, God will wipe away their sins. Isn't that good news? Isaiah 43, 25, I think is the background for this text. "I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my name's sake. And I will not remember your sins. That's Isaiah 43, 25. That, that might even be a good one to put on a card and tape to your mirror in the morning. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake and I will not remember your sins. What's the image here? Well, the days in which paper was exorbitantly expensive. Uh, If you needed to jot down notes, if you needed to leave a note for your wife when you ran to the the local Piggly Wiggly, what you would do is you would take a board and you would cover it with wax. And you would take a stylus, a sharpened stick, and you would write in the wax. It's kind of like a whiteboard. But here's the cool thing. Because it was reusable. In the heat of your hand, you would begin to wipe it, to rub it. It would heat that wax, and it would wipe it away. And the comparison here is that all of our sins were written on a wax tablet. And in salvation, God wipes it all away. Do you remember Etch-a-Sketches? Remember Etch-a-Sketches? It's almost like our sins were written in an Etch-a-Sketch. And God then takes it and shakes it. And that sand wipes it away, and it is no more. And then it's even better, because then he takes the wax tablet, the Excel sketch, that records all of Jesus' good deeds and all his righteousness, and then he applies that to our account. He says, hey, here, hold this. This is now your record. That's what he does for those who murdered the author of life, and this is the promise that he holds out for you and me as well. Praise be to God. Well, how does our text end? It takes us to the end of time. Verses 19 through 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So the time in which we live between the first and second coming of Christ is described as a time of refreshing, right? Uh, you know, there's that great country song, It's a Great Day to Be Alive. sun still is shining when I close my eyes. I think of that when I think of this period between the first and second advent. It is a time of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, a time of the rule and reign of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the expansion of the church and the kingdom of God. It is a great day to be alive, a refreshing time. But there is a better time that is coming, and that is the time of the restoring of all things, when Christ comes and makes all things new. And those who have had the wax slates of their records wiped out by God through faith in Jesus Christ, we can all pray together. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are the one who wipes out our transgressions and that you no longer remember our sins. Oh, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that. And oh Lord, may this be quick on our lips, that others might hear about the name of Jesus from us, that you would use us to take others to the now-what moment, And they would perceive the mercy and the loveliness of Christ and come to know you. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.